It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Hello and welcome back to Ashes to Classics, a silent movie podcast where we are loud about silent film. Not just any silent film, but recovered silent films, the ashes that become the titular classics, so to speak. I am Stephen and with me as always is David. Hello David, how are you? I'm good, thanks Stephen for introducing us uh, wonderfully as always. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, today's going to be a bit of a treat, um, because we are going through, we've been going through a heavy hitters of Weimar cinema for a while now, and we've reached a personal favourite of David's, and someone that I've watched too little of, but love what I've seen. So, yes, we'll talk about the film at the end, Loves of, the love, the loves of Pharaoh, the lovers of Pharaoh, the loves of Pharaoh. The love of Pharaoh, the wives of Pharaoh. It's It's been translated a couple different ways. I think the wives of Pharaoh is, is like technically the more correct, but in English it's translated as yeah. the love of Pharaoh. It is Das Vieb des Pharaoh okay. is, is the German title. So yeah, the what we will refer to as a whole bunch of different titles throughout um, the trajectory of this podcast, I'm sure. But we're going to say for now, the loves of Pharaoh. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. And we'll talk about the idea of the epic in the style of the, um, oh, what's his name? Um, DeMille. DeMille and maybe a bit of Griffith um, will have their names said for the first time for DeMille really here. But first of all, tell me about Ernst Lubitsch. Ah, well, why don't uh, you start telling me about Ernst Lubitsch, actually? I think that's a, that's a better way to go. Because I think, uh, as, as you discussed before and mentioned you know, we don't necessarily think of Lubitsch as a German director, and I think that's no. an interesting facet here about what we'll jump into with his pre-Hollywood... Yeah, he, he's definitely kind of perceived as one of the pillars of the classic Hollywood style. He's kind of very much so carved out this particular identity as one of the kind of leading directors of the pre-code and post-code era in particular of the, the comic scene. Because, yeah, so when I think Lubitsch, which I don't do as often as you, obviously, but I think pre-code, innuendo, classy. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is, yeah. that, is that a fair three-phrase three That summation? is a very good estimation. Lubitsch has had an incredible, I, I guess you would call it a, a, a marketing aura around him, mm. in that he yeah. is very the recognized. Touch. Yeah, very, very much so. The Lubitsch touch, the titular Lubitsch touch, the well-recognized phrase that is associated with his name, which was initially a kind of just, you know, offhand idea, but very quickly became a genuine method of, of selling him and making him a leading auteur, you, you would call it, of the time period. You know, he was the director selling the film in much the same vein that a Hitchcock or DeMille was at yeah. the time. He was primarily known for, or it is still primarily known for, raucous bedroom romps and uh, for shaping the early hallmarks of the Hollywood One day I wish to be known for raucous bedroom romps. One day. (laughs) So uh, Lubitsch's legacy as an emigre success is perhaps the most overshadowing of any of the Weimar directors. Uh, It's not just Mm. a matter of Hollywood films becoming more celebrated over time than his German ones. There's an argument to be made that no one influenced the style and prestige of Hollywood's blossoming era more than Lubitsch. Yeah. With such enduring works as the definitive pre-code comedy Trouble in Paradise, the enduring Greta Garbo classic Ninochka, and the poignant anti-Nazi farce To Be or Not To Be, Lubitsch maintains more undeniable classics than any filmmaker we've thus far covered. And those are really just like the surface level heavy hitters. I would say of, well, at least from my perspective, kind of going through film, old Hollywood especially, Lubitsch's name would come up more than most of the any other director we've covered here. I can't think of someone who had more name, more films, yeah. uh, more readily associated, more 
prominently featured and focused. It's definitely a director in, in, in the canon, little, so to speak. I've seen very little of their work. It is someone that I'm very aware of and was even aware of before getting around to watching even the, the paltry amount that I had seen. And I'm very aware of him as as influential figure. Yeah. And yeah, and I'd agree. Of, of, I mean, yeah, of the directors we're covering. Absolutely huge. At least for people who take a more, I don't know, conventional route I, I, through some of the, the canon, at least, I think it's very easy to get hooked on to Lubitsch because there's a very quick connection with someone like Wilder. Uh, Billy Wilder okay. was a huge advocate for, for Lubitsch. He was a huge student of him. He he looked at him as a mentor. when he, uh, Throughout his career in his office, he had a sign yeah. over his um, doorway that said, what would Lubitsch do? It was how would, how would Lubitsch <laughs> do it, it, it basically said. So he, he thought about it all the time and... You, you see that influence. And he worked with Lubitsch a couple of times, actually, in the aforementioned Ninochka, and he also wrote with Charles Brackett a script for Bluebeard's Eighth Wife. Very interesting. So yeah, as, as mentioned earlier, so the, the, the ones you've mentioned, so I've seen the one today, and then I've seen Trouble in Paradise, and To Be or Not To Be. It's been up to be a couple of times, because it's, it's absolutely wonderful in Trouble in Paradise once at your behest. Um, but I'm keen yes. to get back to it at some point, because it is great. It is I properly, it properly again, great. Just... I saw. I rewatched it again just uh, for for this, just because I thought uh, it'd be good to refresh on something that's just so indelible, such a incredible classic. And mm. I think, as I've discussed before, I think it's just so essential for for the time period, and and, and particularly for Lubitsch. And uh, for a film from 1932, it feels so in, incredible and uh, so well crafted and, and directed, and just put together and. I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll gush about it more, but I'm also excited to gush about the, the German stuff here. But to start, I, I want to yeah. show you that I brought some extra material this week. I brought That's a big book. book. For the listener at home, there's a large book about Lubitsch. Yeah, Very this is book. a Lubitsch biography by Joseph McBride. Joseph McBride. How did Lubitsch do it? I also have this little BFI book about Trouble in Paradise in particular, yeah. which was very nice. It went over a lot of early stuff, uh, not not just those BFI Trouble books. Really good. They're really good. But, yeah, they're like they're they're full on books. They don't look it necessarily, but that's a mm. it's a good hundred pages there. Yeah, I've got my my Clio Clio five to seven one right here. Boom. Very nice, and they're ni- they're nice presented. I like the uniformity of them. Mm. Yeah, it, it makes cool. you want to collect them, doesn't it? <laughs> Yes, yes, it does. Yes, it does indeed. So, uh, from the McBride book, which I've got lots of wonderful quotes for here throughout, just to kind of exemplify again how Lubitsch's reputation has endured, uh, I think McBride puts it even better than I did just now. It would not be until he established himself in America with contemporary comedies, usually set in Europe, whose complex, sophisticated characterizations were expressed through a remarkable economy of means that the Lubitsch, known for his delicate touch, would emerge in the media, first as a critical observation and soon as a publicly enhanced brand name for moviegoers. That is the Lubitsch we tend to think of today, especially since his German films are relatively little known. Mm. So, yeah, he's really not remembered for a lot of the German films that he made. A, even myself, who was a advocate and student of Lubitsch, leading up to this show, leading up to this yeah. podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've not really seen any of his German stuff, but I watched, as I said at the end of the last week's episode, a lot of them, a lot of his German films, okay. not just the comedies, but everything else, the historical stuff and uh, interesting dramas and things leading up to it because uh, they just fascinated me more as a part of a wider filmography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it a more kind of like, I don't mean versatile in the way of like skill, but versatile in the sense of varied, I guess, Weimar output then solidifies into he makes a kind of film in the Hollywood system or establishes a kind of film in the Hollywood system. Kind of. There's there's a very distinct difference between his okay. German film output and his Hollywood output that's uh, was kind of touched on as well in the book. And you see immediately watching even his uh, silent Hollywood comedies and such. There, the the elegance and the refinement that we associate with Lubitsch doesn't really come along until that transatlantic uh, journey. There, okay. it the, the the German films are a lot more broad. They're a lot more body. Uh, in a more kind of explicit manner. So a lot of his German films weren't the the kind of elegant pictures you're imagining, like Trouble in Paradise. Mm. There was a lot more kind of a, I don't want to say crudeness, but there there's definitely a kind of more, not not even rudimentary, because again, it was it, they, they, these were qualities of the films. They weren't conventionality. Uh, they weren't defects. No, not even conventionality. Ooh. There was just just this kind of like a, a more kind of like down and dirty aspect to it. I guess okay. you're just, I'm trying to think of the, the, the better definitive word. There was, there was a roughness to it that was intentional. Again, the, the elegance yeah. and the refineness that come, that we associate with Lubitsch 
was not so much a facet of it. It was it was something he adopted yes. coming over and, and kind of understanding that he carried with him this kind of European sensibility that the American... Uh, so the expectation of what Europe to. means. <laughs> oh, and he just really adapted onto that and then was able to to spin it into this you like know, kind of very Love creative that. persona. Mm. So the, the German films he made are, are a lot more... Oh, uh... There, there's comparisons to a lot more of a kind of a more rural kind of sensibility, I guess, in in some ways, some kind of yeah. uh, perception of even as he is making prestige films and dramas and such, there also is a lot of appeal in the more provincial aspects that you could uh, kind of look at with, with some yeah. of the more German specific uh, identity to the films. They're more local appealing in, in, in some cases. Obviously, uh, Lubitsch is known for comedy primarily, even back yeah. in his German films. But what really got him noticed on the world stage and the other thing that he excelled at were what were called costume film, or basically big period dramas, which is, as you saw, I'm sure, what we're going to be talking about yeah. later today. Uh, it's important to highlight some of those because they also ended up influencing his American films in interesting ways and in that he ended up playing off of that and parodying them in a lot of big, what we call Ruritanian films, basically like kind of mystical Eastern Kingdom stories, romances okay. and such yeah, yeah, yeah. that were dramatic and, and humorous in, in that manner. But he, he laid the groundwork for that in Germany in a lot of his breakout films doing period dramas and big spectacles, the likes of which were very popular at the time, as kind of already alluded to with the DeMille comparison. But before that, he got a start, just like everyone else did, in the theatre yeah. under Max Reinhardt. Okay, that name comes Max up again. Reinhardt. If you're playing the game, the bingo game, you can take off Max Reinhardt. He was initially an actor in the Reinhardt company, in the same kind of vein that Murnau was, for example. Yeah. And you, there's actually still a lot of films where he is the leading actor. That's where we, get a, we see a lot of these early... Um, example before he kind of stepped into directing he made he made a transition so to speak between the the two roles there simultaneously he played a lot of very jewish coded shop clerks okay. uh, he did a lot of uh, ethnic humor in in those roles and kind of played into these characters and stereotypes but eventually found that he would he only had so much range as an actor there was a really great <laughs> quote from the the bfi book that said uh Lewis's short stature and facial features, a cross between a cherub and a gargoyle, <laughs> meant he could never play the lead, but he brought character and energy to the smallest role. And he carried that, that sensibility, that acting sensibility, without him through life. You can see in interviews with various stars and later historians, uh, Bogdanovich in particular gives t tells a good story over lots of different interviews about how Lubitsch would always act out the parts too whoever he was throughout the career, didn't oh, matter that's if he was cool. playing to Garbo or if he was playing to Jack Benny <laughs> or whomever, he would do the role for them. And obviously he's, he still did it with this very broad, thick German accent and stuff. Like it, it was off the mark completely. Like it would never work for it, <laughs> obviously, but it gave the actors Addictive, a sense yeah. and, they, and they loved it. So that was a very a charming aspect of him. And you can see him a lot in the early films, especially. He, he stopped acting. The last screen appearance he had was in 1920. But... You can see him, and I even looked up some like behind-the-scenes stuff. You can see him in some of the trailers advertising. He, he really was like a Hitchcock of his you know, time very, prior very cool. to, whereas that his name was the thing selling the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so he got a lot of those sensibilities under the tutelage of Max Reinhardt. And a lot of historians have drawn more direct parallels and comparisons to Reinhardt's work as a director to Lubitsch as a more one-to-one -one okay. inheritor there, particularly in the sense of grandiose drama and large crowds in particular that's a big quality they ascribe to reinhardt's stage direction and the few films that he was able to make even including a remake of uh, lubichet went on to remake one of reinhardt's films in 1920 uh sumeroon so the the connection between the two there is perhaps stronger than any of the other filmmakers we've covered thus far Obviously, uh, Reinhardt, being the influential figure he was, really opened the door for theater to transition into cinema for all the figures we've covered, yeah. and Lubitsch in particular. The one advantage that Lubitsch did have as well over his contemporaries working mm. with Reinhardt in the theater scene was that he was not eligible to be enlisted in the army. He was okay. not uh, a citizen of Germany because his father came from uh, Russia at the time. He was R Russian-born immigrants living in Germany at the time. So he was not qualified to enlist in the army during the First World War. So he just kept making a name for himself on the theater. And he was really able to build up a resume and even start working in film as early as the early teens 
and into the uh, you know up through the end of the war. Uh, so able to really establish himself even more so than some of the more prestige directors and actors yeah. and such that we've mentioned. So by the time that the film industry consolidated at the end of the war in Germany, Lubitsch was already at the, the top of the heap, and he was able to really make some, some quality productions that, once the world opened up a bit more to German film, he made an immediate impact. In fact, one of his films was the first to break the barrier in America in particular. It was one of his earliest historical epics. It was called uh, Madame du Barry, it's a, which is a French Revolution drama. So is that success kind of like directly facilitating to his, his later success? Um, Dragon. It was was he already known enough to be able to therefore have more clout and do more when he became an American filmmaker. He was known in Germany, obviously, before yeah. that that success of the historical epics. But the historical epics was what made a splash. Madame du Barry, in particular, made a particular impact on a prominent American actress. Oh, so here we get the the transatlantic appeal then. So. Here's where yeah, the yeah, Lubitsch yeah. touch takes over. Yeah, it made a particular impact with Mary Pickford, of all people. Okay. Do you know Mary Pickford? I know the name, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mary Pickford, just for anyone who's not listening out there, was uh, America's sweetheart, they called her. She was the first named actress, named star in Hollywood in the uh, early 1900s and in the teens. And along with her uh, soon-to-be husband, Douglas Fairbanks, became the, yeah. the named king and queen of Hollywood. Her films were the most popular thing in the country. And she was looking to transition from playing children on screen, essentially, into more adult roles. And she sought out Lubitsch after Madame du Barry to help make that transition for them. She wasn't totally happy with the uh, end result of the film, Rosita, which uh, came out in 1923. But certainly uh, it's what got Lubitsch's foot in the door. And, you know, that was it. After that, he started snowballing. In, into just making films in America. Yeah. But it's a little ahead of where, where we're at chronologically here, if we want to take a step back. But of course, we're good to so, know. So, Madame du Barry was the first major success, but he had made a couple a couple of nominal historical films prior to that in the year 1918. 1918 is kind of where, as a director, Lubitsch really kind of uh, starts to take notice. That's where his feature film work starts as well, with uh, starting with Die Augen der Mumima, which is The Eyes of the Mummy. Kind of a very similar film to what we're going to discuss later in terms yeah, of that. Yeah, it sounds it like it. Exotic, you know, Egyptian... Exoticized you know, and, appeal. yeah, fascination with Egyptology as discipline and idea. Yeah. Which was very popular at the time. Uh, yeah. Egyptology was on a, on a huge rise. Uh, there was also a lot of interest in just... Well, we, we talked last culture. episode, didn't we, of the directors making mummy films then making more mummy films on, like, both sides of um, the Atlantic, so... Yeah, certainly. Well, it, surprisingly, this was before the discovery of the the Tutankhamun. Yeah, that was gonna be my uh, question. Yeah, but when, which when was is interesting because because that that was directly before the, the 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 mummy film, wasn't it? That was what spurred on a renewed interest. It was in the twenties. It was in like twenty two, I want to say, or something like that. And obviously, and that's what most people point to as kind of this real resurgence yeah. of. Egyptology and interest with uh, ancient Egypt in uh, the 20th century, because obviously, you know, it's a big deal because it was a untouched tomb yeah. that was discovered. But obviously, I mean, there was an, it was kind of leading up even before them. I don't know, I'm guessing. Well, like I a... mean, speaking, speaking logically, if there is a dig operation, an archaeological operation out there that is bespoke and complex enough to find that, like, fully preserved tomb, then clearly there's got to be a pre-originating interest. To it, who gets to that level? Yeah, I mean, I, when I think of each of these stuff, I, I mean, in my literary nerd head, I, I go back to um, Shelley's Ozymandias, which is about Ramesses, and again that about the finding the remains of empire. What does it mean to find the remains of empire? I, I think a much more in, more interesting response. Dare I say, the poet Shelley is more politically interesting than these kitschy Egyptology movies. Yeah, for me, it's just it can be an interesting impulse. The idea of like the ruins of empire can make one reflect on empire. Or it can make one indulge in empire as, a, as aesthetic, and that is what the Egyptology fascination does more um, than what Shelley is doing. I mean, honestly, the the eyes of the mummy is even that interesting. Is it? like it, it takes very little place in Egypt. It's basically mm. you've got Emil Yannings in blackface with Pola Negri as this slave girl, basically, and a, a, a like a British you know boar takes her away, takes her back to e- England, and uh, puts her on vaudeville of all things she becomes like a vaudeville star <laughs> and all the while Emil Yannings is like tracking her for revenge it's it's a very odd crude yeah. ugly 
film. Not for me. Uh, not for me. Interesting morph. Yeah, no, no, I don't don't recommend it. I watched it just to kind of for the context, especially because it is it's kind of the starting point for Lubitsch's future work. Uh, but obviously, it's like a starting. It's, it's real yeah. rough, even from just like a the technical perspective. Uh, I, I think it also is kind of interesting as a parallel to the film we will talk about today, and seeing those kind of direct parallels you can make between these two Egyptology films, these Egypt fascination. But yeah, as far as an actual qualitative work it would not be worth revisiting but it is also nominal for being the first of films that he partnered with both Emil Yannings and Polo Negri with yes okay this film also helps to kind of put them on the map start a successful career as we kind of talked about with Yannings and alluded to with Polo Negri before as well and that uh, also you know blossomed to later successes with Madame Dubarry being another one that they teamed with and these were in Germany I guess what you would call derivations on what was already becoming a popular genre at the time, even preceding the likes of DeMille and Griffith in Italy, of all places. I find these last two films, so this and The Burning Soil from last week, more, quite interesting in context, because we've, we've been so used to a type of Weimar and German film that is so enclosed set-driven and so soundstage driven Mm -hmm. and now to have two films this to a much greater extent the burning soil though both are the case that are defined by open vistas or large scale outdoors settings i mean there clearly is some indoor set being used here but it has a a really interesting scope that you're saying is is therefore more part of this of the genre then so when we've moved beyond the the caligari inflected expressionism into just a more traditional mode for us. Yeah, well, we're in a part of a wider scheme. Again, what, what's interesting about Lubitsch is that uh, not only from a comic perspective, but as well, we get to see that the Weimar era uh, cinema was more than just your Caligaris and Nosferatu's yeah. and your expressionist films here. They had a whole variety of very successful genres that were taking place. You know, it, it was not just because those are the kind of most outstanding films that yeah. have withstood in the canon. They, they do not demonstrate the wide breadth of films that were being displayed and celebrated at the time. Uh, I've got a quote from Krakauer here that kind of demonstrates as well what uh, how the German film industry was working within a wider framework of global cinema. While the sex films crowded the lower depths of the screen world, the histories self-assuredly settled themselves in the higher realms reserved for art. Whether they really presented summits of artistic perfection or not, they were planned as such by the founding fathers of Ufa, who, as has been seen, promoted the idea of putting art to the service of propaganda. There existed a pattern of entertainment strongly appealing to their taste for all that was colossal. The Italian super spectacle. Such films as Quo Vadis and Cabiria had been the rage of two continents. So, Italy actually really kicked off not only the these grandiose spectacles that we associate with a lot of uh, American films as yeah. well, but also just feature films in general. I don't know if you know this. Do you know that the first feature film, the earliest known feature film we have, is an Italian film? No, I did not know that. Yeah, it's an adaptation of Dante's Inferno from 1911. Yeah, oh, very, very cool. I think I may have mentioned that on our Richard III podcast, but I'm repeating it here to emphasize that. I remember, because I've watched a bit and read a chunk of Mark Cousins' story of film, and he talks about a... European early film, but I thought I just I don't know I, do, I thought it was a different country. I thought it was I thought it was not Italy. So clearly, I'm just misremembering. I think it's important to highlight the history of the the Italian spectacle films yeah. here as this kind of first point of feature filmmaking and spectacle filmmaking in film history because so often that gets wrongfully accredited to Griffith in particular. This this is a case of like with you know when he makes Birth of a Nation, he's actually working off of what's being exported out of yeah. Italy at this time period. Films like Cabiria, which are doing these grandiose, these, uh, you know, indulgent, super spectacle vice, and you know, Babylonian-esque yeah. kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, big features like this and where that's uh, the appeal. And so when someone like Griffiths comes along and does it and we see them as the, the founding father of film in that sense, that's a kind of incorrect history that needs to be course corrected and again here's Lubitsch doing it as well Lubitsch working off of that same trend that is being very popular throughout the world not just in Germany or America you know every, everyone is seeing these films coming out of the various places and that's the trend of the time and Lubitsch was one of the big names along with that I was quite struck by I mean that quote's really interesting but I was really struck by that I the kind of revised point there of talking about the the sex films um, at the beginning and then linking to mm-hmm. the 
the perception of the um, classics, these epics, um, as much more interesting. Kind of, I don't know. So it reminds me of other film movements because I've been watching some kind of like more like exploitation trash stuff recently, and I'm reading this book about it. And that's of think Steffi Rothman is is her name, and she talks about how she worked in the exploitation industry because once she'd ticked off the things that she had to do, she was then able to make more progressive and interesting films that now do hold up as being more artistic and more interesting than what was alluded as being artistic and interesting at the time. You think to um, Japanese film in the 60s and 70s, I think of um, Wakamatsu with his like Pinku films, like Ex the of Angels specifically, that is a transgressive, interesting political work. And it's fascinating to me that what is not seen as being the artistic at a point because it, it ticks certain salacious boxes or fits into other cultural boundaries then later gets reappraised on a more progressive or liberal cultural eye. And the things that we thought was capital A art, we go, oh, actually, this is kind of crap, but it is shouting art from every precipice account, which is very much what the films about today is. Be like, look, it's an arty film. Mm. Look, it's spectacle. Uh, but I don't know. Strikes me. Strikes me as interesting. I think Lubitsch is a particularly interesting example in this time period because alongside something like uh, Derog and Demumima in 1918, he also is making a sex comedy film in Ich muss kein Mann sing which is, I don't want to be a man, is how that translates. <laughs> it's a cross-dressing comedy satire oh. starring Ozzy Oswalda, which was a, a young German starlet that he kind of raised up and became the face of many of his celebrated comedies to come in that period. And it features her dressing up as a man in a man's outfit and kind of circumventing and fooling her overseer into a kind of lurid homosexual-appearing affair. And it's... Ooh. Interesting. I'm, Intriguing. I, I, watching it myself, I found it to be kind of mm, like like the messaging was a little mixed there because the whole idea of the the whole thesis is that she ends up finding how much harder it is to exist as a man, you know, in, in taking on these these certain facets, having to work within certain uh, ideas and expectations. That it's a, like the a opposite woman... of Orlando, both the Virginia Woolf book and the and the Sally Potter movie, where it's like that that brilliant bit of Orlando just becomes a woman and it's the idea that nothing else has changed about them and now they just find that they just they're limited in so many social scenarios it just shows like that the biases in society it's um, um, yeah a statement to do the other around i mean even like the um jacques demy film a slightly pregnant man of the mario mastriani becomes pregnant and therefore becomes point of spectacle and privilege as opposed to other people being pregnant all the time those ones tend to work better i think than this case does because oh, yeah, those are like great a yeah. woman having to face well, having to face the troubles of a man, it's like, oh, she gets her foot stepped on in a crowded bus and she has to bear through the pain because it hurts more because... Oh, my God. You know, it's like, oh, you know... It, yeah, so it's like it's like bits like that. And I'm like, eh. And so, like, if the whole testimony is the the end is like, oh, it's so much harder to be a man than I thought of it. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. There, Things again, there's, say. Things But I have heard say. other perspectives as well because it does have some interesting demonstrations of you know homosexuality yeah. or you know kind of gender gender, uh, gender fluidity in the sense of how she's but it's uh, it's also to a sense where like i'm like in some ways it's flirting with it in this kind of like risque way and ultimately if there's a message to come back to a kind of normalcy if this that's the whole thesis of the film is to return to this heteronormative yeah. stasis and that's what the, the, the lesson of the film is even. I'm like, I think that's ultimately more negative than it is a positive portrayal. I mean, in sense. It's, it's so reminiscent of so many films get credit sometimes for mentioning and having debates about abortion in the films. But then almost all of mm -hmm. them have as part of a plot line the, oh, but it doesn't happen and there isn't an abortion and blah, blah. So it's like, there's this credit being like, oh, and they're open discussion, but like, yes, but there is still this idea of there is a path that is canonized in film again and again and again. So yeah, you know, you're right. There are films that allude to certain progressive or more open or more interesting ideas or areas that they would not, but usually, as you put very nicely, wrap it in a blanket of normalcy to bring it back to conventionality and then go, there you go, that's how things should be. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes in, in abortion films, you get, especially early examples, you might be misled into watching a pro-eugenic yes, propaganda you did, you movie. Yes, did, you did do that recently. Um, well, I guess not recently anymore, but that is a thing yeah. you did. Yeah. A little bit ago, that was shocking and disappointing to discover, but, you know, it was the 1910s, so... You might have to say what the film is, just so people um, are aware. Yes, 
Where Are My Children by Lois Weber, yeah. a uh, an incredibly progressive feminist filmmaker for the time, which was part of why it was so shocking. Please do watch her film Shoes instead, okay. which is actually incredible. It's, it's a classic uh, example of like, Where Are My Children is... You don't take in the title, and then you take in the title when you're like, oh god, yeah, okay, interesting. <laughs> like, I should have thought about that. But yeah, it, it basically it was billed to me as a progressive social drama yeah. about abortion and birth control. And nowhere did anyone indicate that it was going to have such a uh, heinous bent to it. <laughs> anyway, uh, as far as uh, something like Ich Mushta Kind Man scene, it does not feel as heinous, I guess, in its presentation. Mm. It feels like Lubitsch is trying to flirt with this idea of sexual humor mm. as a facet of his filmmaking. And it's an interesting example of his early on, but he's also very clearly working in a field that he is not super invested in again this these more gendered aspects yeah tor towards it and is it's very very clear in that sense that he's maybe a little out of his depth and there's a reason he doesn't necessarily return mm. to that uh you don't get the sense watching that it's malicious in any way but it's definitely a bit misguided i felt okay. ultimately <laughs> but it was it was worth checking out especially as a kind of juxtaposition to the historical work he's doing that same year and seeing how these will both blossom in different directions yeah. for Lubitsch as a filmmaker and it, it blossoms very quickly because in 1919 he is churning out some absolute classics some absolute significant works for the era here particularly in the comic scene his most celebrated films today are those comic films. Just, to, David, you have to give me, but every time you say the comic scene, I'm like, he's making superhero films? Like, generally, my first thought is... Oh, so... <laughs> my mind's been polluted by comic meaning comics. L Lubitsch directing the next Ant-Man movie? I mean, couldn't get worse. So, <laughs> yes, a, a dead German director would make a better Ant-Man movie than the most recent one. I'm willing to say it. I would bet almost certainly. No, but uh, he was busy making uh, some more interesting body co comedies, sexual comedies at the time. Uh, the, these kind of romantic interplay yeah. films. Stuff that you would definitely associate with him much later in films like, like Trouble in Paradise. So fitting into my, my head picture of what a Lubitsch is then. Yeah, so if you think about what Lubitsch is, these two films will fit that mold, but they will also surprise you okay. in how kind of different they are. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll tell you about them. They are Die Pupa, or The Doll, and the Ashton Princessin, the Oyster Princess. The doll was the one I recommended to you yes. that you did not yeah, get a chance yeah, 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 to yeah, yeah. see. But I will happily describe it here, and hopefully it will inspire you and everyone listening to check it out, because ultimately it's going to be kind of a better example of what Lubitsch was doing and shining at at this time period. So it starts off with Lubitsch himself. He's the, he's the filmmaker. He's the director. He's setting up this little dollhouse set, effectively. It's on like a little background here. And so it's giving you this kind of already fantastical setting. This is going to be like a storybook tale that going in here. And the whole film is done with these kind of more phony backdrops and props and such and painted walls and stuff in a very expressionistic really style. Cool. It has a lot of expressionistic elements in a comedy like this. And this is a year before Caligari. So obviously taking from the theater trends of the time mm. and making an impact even before the filmic scene really exploded with something like Caligari. So you're seeing that influence already, and you're seeing how Lubitsch is interpreting it into his films here. The setup of the film is that there is a sexually ambiguous male lead who does not want to marry. He does not want a relationship of some kind. Uh, but he is being pressured by his dying relatives, his uncle, to get married so he can continue his family lineage. And he's offering him... A large amount of money to do so mm. and the beginning of the film starts with all of these women chasing him around in a keaton-esque farce of trying to wed this man before he ends up taking sanctuary in a monastery and they're a series of like impious monks who are gorging themselves on food but running out of money at the time so they convince the the boy named lancelot to get married but get, get into a fake marriage with a very real looking doll like there's a man that they know who makes lifelike dolls and they're saying they can pull the wool over his yeah. dying uncle's eyes by getting married to this doll and then just taking the money and giving it to the monastery and it's it's just an absolute riot and it's wild and again very expressionistic in weird ways and just so 
fantastical at the at the same time. Uh, the, the the inciting thing that happens is that the doll is broken by a kind of odd child, like mature looking child acting. You, you got to see this kid; he's fucking wild <laughs> <laughs> in the way he acts, and he and he has a direct camera address at one point, which is really interesting and odd. And it, he just it, says yeah, these this, very weird. Sounds really experimental, like really like postmodern in kind of like ways I would not expect from this time period in my filmic period. I mean, more than you can imagine, more than you can realize, I think. I'm doing a disservice by just describing some of the punchlines and stuff. Really and cool. again, it gets way more chaotic than you expect in a, in a Lubitsch film. Uh, there's like a, a, a brawl that the shop assistant and the doll designer have at one point. And the mm. first time I watched it, I turned my wife, I said, this movie has gremlin energy. This is a real oh. like, gremlin-like scene here. <laughs> it's just weird and wild. And, and it's very, again, like it's it's very sexually considered the a lot of the dialogue is very hinting and innuendo-esque like again the 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 dolls are very clearly you know considered in a certain way but always kind of under the guise of presentation so that's the idea but the premise being that the the daughter takes over as you know stand in for the doll that gets broken and has to fake her way (laughs) through through this charade the whole time while fending off all the things but again like there's also a lot of these beautiful expressionistic touches one of the things that made an impact the first time i watched and the second time when i watched it again recently was there's a scene where, where he takes the doll like he's gonna go take her home with him and he you know calls over like a cart you know a horse-drawn carriage to get in and the horses are guys in horse costumes like they're just like four dudes in in your typical like horse costume there pulling the carriage that reminds me of a a bit from orpheus you know that bit of no or is it the middle one i know it's testament of orpheus when they just arrive there's that Mm -hmm. guy with the horse costume just walking around and they go to that like graffiti covered wall Oh, this is my jam. They're, yeah, they're presented like they're still horses, like again, like within mm. the realms of the world. But it's just another like touch. Again, like like this is made up like a like a fairy tale, like a, a facade yeah. essentially. And it's just like this nice absurdist touch that I absolutely loved, and it adds to this further kind of yeah. uh, pretend nature of the film. That's really nice. And yeah, I, that's I, I really fell in love with it because of that. I said this is definitely something special. It's again, it's a lot more kind of like crude and slapdash than the refinement you expect from Lubitsch, but it does so as a as it's an asset to the film. It's not a it's not a flaw. It's very cool. much, you know, working like that. I, I got a lot more Sturgisian touches, I guess you could you could call them in terms Good. of a lot more of the slapstick that's what going on here that you don't usually get in a Lubitsch film. Yeah, yeah. so a lot more of that. Uh, the the Oyster Princess is similar in that way. Again, these are both films starring Ozzy Oswalda, who is just a wonderful comic presence. And you get more of those strong feminist elements from her strong female character uh, senses than you did yeah. from something like so where that one faltered for me a bit in terms of her characterization and kind of putting her in the back seat these ones really allow her to to shine yeah. uh, there's another film that I would also highlight and recommend from Mr. German the last comedy he made in Germany before he left which is called The Wildcat and that one stalls Pola Negri and it is also a gremlin energy kind of movie, but it's a lot less focused. It's a lot more all over the place and like really unwieldy. But what's crazy about it is that I would call it perhaps even more expressionistic than the doll, but in a very unexpected way. And in a way I have seen no other silent film utilized to such extremity. And that is the frame. Okay. So constantly throughout the film in the wildcat, the frame is being interpreted in these very, interesting ways very artistic kind of cutouts essentially the whole uh, every every different shot is like kind of like a different cutout like okay. sometimes it's like this big wobbly wobbly circle that kind of uh frames the whole thing there there was occasionally times where it was like there was like a river path carved through the the center of the frame to kind of highlight things as well it was really like oh here we are using the medium like it is a portrait like it's a yeah. a painting that we can use certain perspectives through and we can limit the amount of attention we're giving here and you get some of that in the doll as well there's interesting uses of like cutting off half the frame to emphasize like the bottom half or splitting it oh, absolutely down love the center that kind of stuff yeah that's yeah fascinating which is stuff you do see you see split screens and such in modern mm. film still but never ever to the degree you did in silent film yeah. And I've never seen it to the extremity as I did in the Wildcat. I mean, we've talked about this a lot about the things we love about the, the early force practicality of filmmaking. If you just you just had to be playful with like the kind of analog technology in front of you to actually make things happen, as opposed to now we're just like, well, yeah, I can put that in an edit and I can put it in the computer. It is kind of like after the fact facilitating, as opposed to really resourceful. Very, it just feels so hands on to me. 
It's just very hands-on, technical, practical wizardry, actual magician work mm-hmm. of it's all actual sleight of hand as opposed to trickery later. As the medium has evolved, the emphasis on, I think, visual language on film has lost or, or has taken less of an emphasis as it did in the earliest eras, for sure. But even though this still retains it to a degree, there's a, a focus on immersion and uh, verisimilitude that sometimes holds back a lot of modern films from the yeah, creativity and the splendor that you can get that you get in a lot of silent films. Obviously, though, in like the dramatic films of Lubitsch, you, you don't get the same kind no. of just wild playfulness with the frame and the the concept of filmmaking itself. There's still a lot of creative vision, though, yeah. vi- visuals. Anyway, let's write out the history of uh, Lubitsch, though, before yeah. we move on there, because there's still a whole quick segment I'll run through. I don't want to focus too much on his sound period. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we already talked about, in 1923, he came over to America at the behest of Mary Pickford to make Rosita. And uh, it, it was mildly successful at the time. Uh, it wasn't well regarded by Pickford in general, who didn't even bother to preserve the film, <laughs> really. But Lubitsch stayed on and continued making films in America. He followed it up with a film called... The Marriage Circle, and then later uh, Lady Windermere's Fan. He made a film called Forbidden Paradise, which I watched and talked about on the podcast before, which is a wonderful, n- another uh, collaboration with yeah. Paul Negri. And eventually, he stuck around until sound came along in 1929. 1929, he made his first sound feature, which was The Love Parade. Okay. A musical. It was one of the first musical films, and maybe one of the most important musical films that most people don't realize. Why? 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 Well, because uh, if you watch a bunch of other musical films from 1929, uh, say like the Broadway Melody or the Great Gabo, uh, they are stage set musicals. Yeah. They are people on stage giving a performance, and a lot of the stories are also backstage dramas. It's all set in the world of theater. Do you reckon that seemed to be the appeal of this is a thing that film can do now? I mean, because I mean, the Broadway Melody won Best Picture, didn't it? So it's the idea of look, film can now give you that in the same way that maybe in the states as well, but definitely in this country, there is a huge rise in streamed into cinema spectacle of you can't go see this national theater production in the National Theatre, but you can see it everywhere. The idea of like spreading Broadway theatre to the masses through cinema maybe was the primary appeal then. It goes back to what we're saying now, of that's not as appealing now, and therefore it's easy to look back on what Lubitsch is doing as more revolutionary in the long term. I mean, it was revolutionary in a lot of senses. I think it was, first of all, incredibly bold for Lubitsch to do uh, again like just you know considering like you're, you're making your first film and sound for the first time and you're going to tackle a musical of all things yeah. a totally untested genre here uh, that's crazy uh, especially even for him uh, through all this research I did not see anywhere where he made musicals anywhere else in his career in Germany <laughs> or otherwise like on the stage or anything there there's no sense of that at least from, from yeah. what I read so he certainly wasn't studied in in the practice prior but it's a very different musical from anything else you can watch in 1929 because of how it immediately projects the style towards the more fantastical, more immersed, you know, kind of expressive nature that musicals would have that you associate with the MGM era. If a mm. musical is about, if the idea of the songs and musical is that they are outward expressions of characters' inner emotions, the Love Parade is the first example on film to do that from Hollywood. Brilliant. Okay, yeah, that's enough. Enough ones on the list. Yeah, it's uh, it's the first in a series that he did with uh, the French star Marie Chevalier and Jeanette McDonald paired together. Uh, he made better ones later on. Does that box set isn't there? There's the Lubitsch musicals box set. Yeah, DVD box set. Yep. Uh, there's also one from director Ruben Moulian, which is also very great, very much of the same kind of ilk. It's Love Me Tonight, that one's called. It's basically a Lubitsch musical, but just a little bit more cinematically inventive, one might say. Yeah. But yeah, I, I recommend all, almost all of those. They're all great. But uh, in particular, The Love Parade, uh, just to kind of highlight how innovative and humorous and different they, they were, the opening song in that one is called Paris Stay the Same, I believe is the name of it. And it's and it's like a three-part song where, where Chevalier's character is called back to his home kingdom from Paris, and he sings out to all the ladies he's loved in Paris about how much he's going to miss them. And then his butler comes in and sings a verse to all the maids of Paris that he's loved and had affairs with and how much yeah. he's going to miss them. And then his dog comes and sings <laughs> a chorus to all of the little dogs out in Paris that he's going... And yeah, just this 
great comic opening. And again, already I'm just like, that's so wild and so different than anything you're seeing from this time mm. or even thereafter. Uh, again, like what you're doing with sound and musical, yeah. like just super innovative and different. And again, coming off of an already incredible and inventive silent career just to make an immediate mark like this is outstanding. But obviously he didn't stop at musicals. You know, this shows that his propensity for sound very early on, but he even demonstrated further into a lot of the comedies he made. Again, the thing that he's known for, 1930s, you know, we've got Design for Living and Trouble in Paradise and uh, all sorts. And even into the, the postcode era, he's still making these same kind of sexual body comedies, you know, and getting away with it in ways that nobody else was at the time period in like the Bluebeard's mm. Eighth Wife. And uh, um, that uncertain feeling is another one. Again, they, they feel distinctly pre-code in a postcode era. And, and that's all thanks to the very suggestive way that Lubitsch is able to communicate things, in particular in visuals, but also how he's able to utilize and twist dialogue from, from various writers. But visually in particular is kind of this, this key way, I think, that's the holdover from his silent era that's really defined there. Yeah. In, in interviews, Billy Wilder defined this methodology that Lubitsch had. He called it a principle of two plus two. Is, is how he kind of defined it and he gave example from one of his one of Lubitsch's films. That's one of the ways in which Lubitsch was able to work around censorship and deliver even more satisfying jokes to the yeah. audience. Again, that, that makes people far more invested in, in the humor in the sense that they are they are understanding and engaging with it than just having the jokes told to yeah, them or, so. you know, or just kind of said explicitly. So that's really one of the, the key facets to the Lubitsch touch, you could call it, I guess, if we we're going to lay it out and define it here. So, shall we talk about this epic. One, one more film. I, can, I, can, I should at least mention one more film real quick here. One, one more little bit about Lubitsch. Well, I, one I, know, more. I know we're, we're spending a lot of time. So uh, obviously he, he had a lot of successful films throughout the 30s and, and into the 40s, but one really stands out because obviously Lubitsch has been hanging out in America for about 10 years when the Nazis take over in 1933. And Lubitsch, I've got a quote here about it. <laughs> The filmmaker watched, appalled from a distance, as the Nazis gradually instigated legal anti-Jewish measures. Lubitsch's response in 1941-42, as America entered the war, was to use the weapons of art in his devastatingly original and controversial black comedy, To Be or Not to Be. So, To Be or Not to Be obviously stands as, I think, one of the paragons of satirical comedy that, mm. that still lasts today. I, I know you're a huge fan a of it. Huge fan, huge fan. It's really so sharp and smart yep. and incisive and again in, in a particularly sensitive subject that even today would be kind of hard to do properly well without, yeah uh, because there is a more there is a more recent example that does not do it well at all um which will go unnamed mm -hmm. actually two relatively more recent examples you know there's there's a lot i'm sure there's a lot more is too it's th there's a delicacy here especially in terms of what to be or not to be does is that it it is able to paradise and lampoon the threat of the Nazis yeah. without defanging yes. them, yeah, yeah, without yeah. de-emphasizing the horror and atrocity and the capability of destruction mm. that they have. There is still a, a genuine sense of tension and threat from them at all points yeah. in the film, despite how absolutely farcical and inept they are, are presented as and exposed to be. And that is not easy to do. And the fact that Lubitsch is able to navigate the drama and the comedy so effortlessly between in that presentation there is i think really a credit again a point of kind of demonstrates an apex of his career and a marrying of those qualities that have defined his career yeah. up until that point i think i think of it a lot actually there's there's, there's the as i mentioned maybe on this podcast before but the there is a speech late in that film that i think of really really often which is the the reinterpretation of the merchant of venice moment is one of my favorite film moments in general reading out that speech in the theatre at the end, and especially as it's a, an echoing and mirroring of a, a previous moment is, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That moment is so incredible as well because it turns it into a distinctly pro-Jewish mm. film as well, not just an anti-Nazi film yes. in that sense. which and is it, really important. It, it turns around this cultural stereotype that's very recognized even at that time and makes it an empowering yeah. uh, idea for, for it there. And that's touched on in, in McBride's book as well as uh, that, that character. He's a character, the character who delivers that speech is a prominent character actor in a lot of his Lubitsch films that he oh, identifies oh, as kind oh. of a cipher for Lubitsch yeah. in his post-acting career. 
He he stands in as kind of like a Lubitsch as the Jewish filmmaker. He is a prominent Jewish character in many of Lubitsch's films that really solidifies that identity. Uh, and again, it, 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 with To Be or Not To Be being a particular uh, high point in that yeah. characterization. Anyway, maybe less of a <laughs> noteworthy exemplar of Jewish representation on screen is Das Vib des Pharaoh. <laughs> I don't, I don't like this film <laughs> at all. Um, I, you know, I, I don't blame you that much. Uh, I, I, I think I like it a bit more, but maybe, uh, you know, for superficial reasons. It's, yeah, I mean, it's very superficially impressive. It has these wonderful, not only just sets, but sense of scale to it. And I actually think there is some power in the last 20 minutes that moved me a bit in spite of myself. But when you consider it in the context of narrative, it doesn't really work for me at all. It's, it's the amount of people in the frame is always stunning. Lots of really big sense of scale, not just to the physical location, what's done with the location. I was actually impressed at the beginning by it still feeling quite funny in its kind of like witty performances. There is, though the context around it, when you think about it, doesn't add to the humour, but there is this kind of like, I don't know, this, this conversation towards the beginning where they're passing this letter back and forth and it has this just over-theatrical gestures, which are quite witty and well-staged. Um, and it's maybe because I'm used to Lubitsch mm-hmm. being a certain mode that I'm looking for that as well. But you can still see, I mean, it's, it's blocked, interestingly. It's acted, interestingly. There are things to enjoy here. But one, I'm never going to really like this because it is this big outside of view of the, the Egypt epic where one whole society in the film is presented in blackface and the leader yeah. of them. And that's yeah. going to be a pervasive thing. And then you've got the presentation of... By the way, that's uh, just a to go look guy, isn't it? leader in blackface. Paul Paul Wagner. Yeah, he's an important figure. He's the uh, one of the expressionist guys. That Golem guy. Shout that out. Yeah. Yes, in black. Yes. If you ever want. Yeah, to see if you want to see that. Um, oh, rough, and it links into the presentation of those people when it is a caricaturing of an entire nation there through that. And my feeling about the story, I do agree with you to an extent of the thing that you wrote about this, of it definitely being there is a anti-tyrannical view to it, which is right because it presents the pharaoh as a tyrant in a negative way. But the ways it does that is is that kind of like, it doesn't recognise the inherent tyranny in the system. This is a tyrannical system, and it's, yeah. it's the this is the bad one amongst things. It, it is still a system of enslavement, and the character that's passed around this film is an enslaved woman. And it, it has a plot that I can imagine working really well in a upper-class kind of female-led... Lubitsch farce melodrama because there is an interesting thing of going back and forth and him and him and him and the moment you put that in the stakes of empire building it feels really crass to me and really exploitative mm-hmm. and it and it's a lot of agency because the power dynamic is so different it's not oh this man and this man and now this man's being controlling which is its own thing but its own gendered comment now it's this huge weird power thing of I am the pharaoh and I can blind people which skews it totally for me in spite of the wonderful sets the anti-tyrannical reading there is very much informed by, you know, again, what I've discovered yeah. so far and going through a lot of these and reading Crack Hour in that sense. But uh, as I, I, I hope I point out there, yeah. at least, um, it's very, like, surface level. Oh, hugely, like, yeah. yeah. Tyrant you you bad. do write that exactly. Yeah. Tyrant bad theme. And that that's, like, the sense... Again, the, the real selling point of the film is just this sense of spectacle and exoticism. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that was impressive for me and maybe why I'm a bit more lenient especially coming off of some uh, far more underwhelming spectacle films from Lubitsch where it's really like yeah oh yeah I guess Emil Yannings does look like Henry VIII here that is pretty impressive <laughs> look there's a lot of people in this crowd the the crowd direction in particular is a lot more impressive here than in some of the other uh, spectacle films he did like it feels very well guided very coherent very staged and mm-hmm. photographed yeah well. it does in a way that really you're like Oh yeah, I could definitely see why Lubitsch was earning that reputation next to other people who. There's a vibrancy uh, in life to even... it when there are big crowd scenes. When there are big crowd scenes, you believe them as big crowd scenes, as this is a shot across a kingdom, as opposed to. I mean, I think back to um, the Shakespeare film we watched, where it's like this feels like a yeah. bunch of like amateur actors just like waving poles around, even when there are lots of them on screen, and this feels like no, that is those are the people of the realm being shown there in a way that is difficult to articulate for the time period and it's not just the staging it's the framing as well the the perspective that the cameras and the editing uses to contextualize and direct these crowds around in these very coherent manners 
it's it's a very compelling film visually. Like wa watching it, yeah. even if narratively, character wise, I couldn't care less at times. I was <laughs> yeah. always engrossed visually in what was going on. It was very compelling in in that sense, and that was very impressive to see. Not only in terms of Lubitsch's oeuvre, but also overall, again, in terms of spectacle films from this time period or even earlier or later even in some cases. Like, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm way more taken with this than I am, you know, a DeMille or a, uh, a Griffith or, you know, uh, even a lot of the, the Italian ones that we alluded to as well earlier. There's there's a coherence yeah. and certainty in the direction here that you get the sense that is very built up over time. And I, I saw it later as well, this, this kind of training that Lubitsch has here emphasized in other grandiose films that he had. Again, taking these sensibilities into those Ruritanian dramas, into films like Forbidden Paradise mm -hmm. that have these expansive large kingdom casts. But they are then, those are the nice decoration on top of a very compelling character story that is emphasized first and foremost in those. Those those paint the backdrop, so to speak, and, and that's mm. that direction that's really harnessed and, you know, hardened here. I mean, you mentioned the narrative. A lot of plot in this, isn't there? Yeah. Like you say, it is, again, it goes back to this yeah. being the melodrama is not a good fit for the setting. It's just, it's, it's I mean, which means it, it kind of like whips by. Like it is, it is nicely paced, almost because there's just so much happening, overcomplication happening. Like, to go back to an original point, like I, I do want to be self-reflective because it's very easy for me to be like, to dismiss this, but then I should also be like, but a film I very clearly love is Lawrence of Arabia, which you could make a lot of, a lot of similar complaints about. So I did think partway through, like, why why do I love Lawrence Arabia, but why do I... But obviously there are kind of, like, quality reasons of this is just stunning filmmaking. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. This should be said, this is not Lawrence of Arabia. Exactly. <laughs> no, but, but even forgiving that, what, why am I... To be reductive about star ratings, why am I not being, like, Lawrence Arabia, you know, four-star because it's blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, five-star movie, absolutely fantastic, and this two-star movie. And it's, it's because Lawrence Arabia, yes, it has a Colonius bent to some of the inherent casting decisions and representation decisions. But I was so stunned by the complexity of the, the character narrative in, in that film and what it does with that character. And I was like, I don't want to film with this guy. This guy is like, and yeah. it's like, no, it, it embraces with that, becomes about that because it, it makes the narrative about empire and about colonialism. And it's such a shame that it has the dregs of that in the expression. I think that's why it works for me as opposed to this film, which has... A splendor, not to the same extent, because nothing is to the same extent, but has that splendor because it does nothing with it, it points it nowhere. Even if you want to point to other examples of, you know, these kind of spectacle, mm. Eastern, you know, society-focused dramas like this, better ones than this even, the thing that makes something like Lords of Arabia stand out to go on that tangent here from our silent film discussion uh, <laughs> is that Lawrence very particular very especially in that film is characterized as an incredibly in flawed yes and uh flawed character that uh, even other films of this ilk do not paint to such a degree there's a reason why Lawrence of Arabia is still held up as, as one of the greatest films ever and yeah. uh something like this is <laughs> it's not apparently <laughs> yeah we're weird that weird that but yeah, I mean, even other you know films that have those kind of colonialist narratives and don't explore them to that degree yeah. still stand out better because of a strong character yes. uh, story first and foremost at the center, even if those characters aren't as flawed or criticized as someone like Lawrence in good. That's a good uh, point. David Lean's film. Yeah, so th again, there's there's no compelling character drama here nope. in particular. Again, it's very, like, like we said before, it's very broad in it. It's very, you know, kind of simplistic in its, yeah. its characterization as good character, bad character. It's better than something like The Eyes of the Mummy, which I talked about before. Sounds it. <laughs> uh, it just as a kind of direct comparison point, but not, you know, especially outstanding. It's, uh, uh, again, all, all of the joy for me comes from the visual presentation, yeah. the certainty of the direction, and the historical significance in terms of the juxtaposition with not only Lubitsch's filmography, but other similarly made films of this time period. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a formal a formal joy to it that I, that I would not deny. Is there an interesting lost and found to this one? Yeah, yeah, I do cool. have some, uh, a very interesting bit here. So the complete version of The Loves of Pharaoh had been considered lost for years, but parts Which, of the film... Oh, was... Yeah, it's, it's, it's worth noting the version that we watched does resort to stills at points to, to cover the action, yeah. but it seems to have a lot of stills. A lot of lost films um, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we've been fortunate so far to cover a lot. Again, even in a, I think our very first episode, very first film with within our gates had a still yes, section does. or yeah, two. Yeah, yeah, so almost this is almost always going to be the case. I, I can't think of very many films that are just like, oh, we found the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah, 
When it came time to put the film back together, it was akin to working on a massive jigsaw puzzle. Thomas Bakels of Munich-based Alpha Omega, uh, the company that did the restoration in uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, okay. uh, spent five years on the digital re registration. Wow. Part of the footage came from a 35mm tinted nitrate print of the movie that the German Federal Archives had required in the 1970s from a film archive in Russia, uh, and they did a trade for original footage that they had for uh, Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. Oh, okay. So the two film museums did a, did a switcheroo, so Russia got back some stuff for Potemkin, and Munich Film Museum got a bit of The Wise of Pharaoh. That's pretty cool. Here's a quote from Bakel's. The Federal Archive here approached us in 2003 with two reels of Pharaoh and said, what can be done? It's not scannable, it is not printable, and this is the last surviving element. Yeah. The Russian footage lasted only 55 minutes and was missing all sequences dealing with love and emotion. The version revolved around massive combat sequences. It was in horrible shape, noted Bakel's. One of the biggest problems with Pharaoh was the perforations on the negative where uh, they were missing all over the place. Bakel's extended the Russian footage with footage from an Italian nitrate print of Pharaoh that George Eastman housed in Rochester, New York, had acquired in 1998. Though the Italian print had been chopped into pieces, it contained the missing love scenes. This was added to other footage, as well as the picture's title cards that had shown up unidentified in film cans during the Munich Film Museum's restoration work on another film. Oh. So, just pieces from all over the place. That's Italy, so cool. Russia, America, some of their own archive, piecing it together, swapping other films around. And interesting to see what pieces were missing in which areas, and yeah. kind of curious. Yeah, you, know, you see this in a couple other places, just like where they certain archives have parts of films. They just took out certain mm. things. I don't know if they were repurposed for something in other films or used in you know things we, we kind of saw that with different from the others as well where you take a portion yeah. you think you can utilize and you stick it into something else you know kind of pseudo documentary work or whatever it, it's it's not always clear sometimes it's just you know and so you get pieces of it and you got to kind of take them from different areas uh, and that's why the collaboration of different archives globally is so important so you can see a film mm -hmm. like this uh, had <laughs> had to really have all all hands across the the world stretching together to kind of piece together back this this film and again in a, in a very lovely presentation from what we saw and it goes back to what we said last episode and we'll keep saying the act of preservation is inherently important it is it is often not about the the thing that is preserved but is important to preserve film history and the things that have existed the strength of the medium and I think as as we kind of highlighted, I think this, this film highlights and its survival highlights an importance of, again, this wider trend of films mm. that was happening, not only in German cinema in terms of the historical epics that were being made, but it globally. And it helps to recolor our perception and our propagandized history that's being retold, especially here in America, about the origins of film, the history, the leaders, the pioneers, so to speak. Yeah. And to recontextualize it in a more global understanding of what was happening at the time what influences were going on yeah. what trends were dominating and such totally i mean it's very easy to to look at films like this as like the footnotes of history but then it's also important to remember that it is the footnotes that make the history like that is the bit the bit that adds the context they are there that are explanatory for a reason is this ephemera that is key to the wider preservation of the medium and of what film meant at that point means going forward. And for a social history, social and cultural history, um, which we can tell through the art yeah. some of the time. Oh, and it's also important, I think, uh, chr chronologically as well to consider, because without mm -hmm. something like The Wives of Pharaoh, you don't get the success Lubitsch has in America. Yeah. If you don't have the success Lubitsch has in America in the comic scene, you don't get the development and yeah. the you you know, refinement from other filmmakers going on. And it's just, it's uh, again, there are, all of these films are important in developing... Yeah and shaping the direction for influential filmmakers who would go on to help create yeah. this this wider sense. Again, as, as we said, and especially just here, if you, if you want to take this out of the equation, the, the musical as we know it probably doesn't even exist because Lubitsch isn't around to really mm -hmm. pioneer and, and change things. I mean, it's, it's, it's also probable that somebody else would come along, but it would just be a yeah. different kind of world. Uh, I think Lubitsch is one of the few figures we can point to and say, that is a, a key figure who is so instrumental in shaping cinema, not just for Hollywood the, in the aesthetics of, of popular there, cinema, certainly, but German film as well. And again, he gets he gets overlooked in the German film discussion in particular because he's not making expressionist horror yeah. films, the likes of Caligari or Nosferatu and such. But uh, he was arguably even more popular, even more influential, uh, and even more defining. But well, it just wasn't well. the it's it's not the 
in in the Vogue genre that we. I'm gonna say controversially to though, today. make less loves of Pharaoh and more expressionist horror films. Please, which maybe you should be making expressionist horror films. Just saying, maybe you should have done. They're better. <laughs> sure, um, sure. But I, I would also encourage you to check out some some yeah. body sexual comedy as well. I wish mm. again, I, I I would have absolutely picked something like the doll here if it had been lost instead as an exemplar. Yeah, we of... we we should actually hide the doll for a while so we can revisit it. There you go. So we we will actually yeah. orchestrate the losing of a film. We'll hold it ransom and then then tell the story that if, way. You know, if I think it's probably with the Munich Film Museum, right? If they want to let me hang on to the print for a few years, I'll yeah. act like it's it's not around. Uh, we can destroy whatever existing DVD yeah, yeah, copies yeah. are still out there. Perfect. Scrub it from the internet, <laughs> and uh, and maybe in like I don't know, ten years time, then we can return to it here and uh, emphasize its its importance. We'll we'll make a big tour of it. We'll show it around all the art house cinemas. Exactly, exactly. That's the, that's how we get on tour. There you go. You heard it here first. Ashes Classics coming on tour. But before we come on tour, we've got a lot of fundraising to do. Um, so please look around you to find all kinds of things, films, sell them to us. And as you're looking around, in a way of also building our prestige, go to your pod player of choice, rate, comment, and subscribe. Obviously not that, but but, but rate where possible. It's, it's how we get a bit more visibility. And find David where fine Davids are found. Um, so he's writing on the twingeeks.com as always, and not on Twitter because he's a moral upstanding gentleman. You can find me on Twitter because I am morally bankrupt at the Stevenage, and both of us are film writings most commonly on letterbox.com. David A. Punch and... Stevenage and patreon.com slash stacks on film if you want to help me afford to live during the cost of living crisis and mm-hmm. let me talk about film more I like talking about film let me do it thank you much for listening any last notes before we uh, sign away for another time yeah we'll be back mm. two weeks from, two now, weeks from now, now with uh, the cap on our exploration of YR cinema talking about the double feature adventure film science uh, fiction uh, double feature spin in the spiders from uh, Fritz Long the spiders from Mars. You heard it here. The spiders from Mars. No, just Fritz regular Long spiders. And the spiders, spiders from Mars. <laughs> well, we'll be back with that, and that'll be an exciting uh, discussion again. I'm, I'm probably the filmmaker you knew the most about going in. Yeah. Long. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Fritz, we'll see. Good old Lang. I like Mapri, and we'll get we'll get David to watch Contempt before that. That's that's the thing. <laughs> David's gonna watch Contempt. Okay, we'll see about that. Yeah. You watch, I'll watch Contempt, you watch The Dog. All right, maybe, maybe I will, maybe I will. Thank you very much, and thank you all for listening. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen.